Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. And I have right here in the studio with me, Mr. Billy Idol. Hello. Hi, Brian. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. This is exciting. Oh, fantastic. So I think you wrote one of the best rock autobiographies, Dancing With Myself. It's a great book. I learned a lot about you from it. A lot of stuff I knew already, but you know, in some ways I think people don't know certain things about you. And I wanted to ask a few things just about tracing the whole story here. I mean, one thing that strikes me as so amazing is that you quit college, you quit university to go off and be a punk rocker, a thing <laughs> that barely existed. You had to tell your dad that you were quitting to start a punk rock band when that wasn't even really a thing. What I'm curious about is where did you have the faith that that would be anything but sort of be ultimately like being a derelict? Where did you have the faith that that could be something when the pistols barely existed? None of this stuff was even happening yet. Well, in 76, I got this postcard so from Steve Bailey was in. He was in the Banshee. Later on, he was in, he was in the Banshees. And he'd seen the Sex Pistols and um, he sent me this postcard saying, you know, we've seen the band we've been waiting for get back up here to London because I was down in Sussex University at Brighton, um, which is only an hour away from London, but in, the, you know, in England, that's, I don't know, that's a long way away from London, you know. But anyway, yeah, they'd seen the Pistols, really, and then I came up to London and I, I saw a number of gigs and I watched the Pistols go from, you know, doing covers, basically, where they were doing covers like Substitute or uh, Don't You Give Me No Lip. And they were doing basically all covers. And then one week I went and um, they put in a new song and it was pretty vacant. And I mean, we were just kind of going, well, well, wait a minute, what's this? You know, because we kind of got used to the covers. But then, hey, wait a minute, what's this? And it was great. You know, it wasn't just a song. It was a great song. And then like a week or so after that, they put in Anarchy in the UK. And I mean, when you heard that, it was just like, this is the anthem of our times. So, you, you know, you're hearing... Basically, I mean, even if it was a band kind of coming together and it hadn't nailed it yet, but they were still playing these songs that were incredible and writing their own stuff. And so somehow or another, you basically, we just sort of believed in what we were seeing, really, and what we wanted to believe, you know, what we wanted to see. Because we were just thinking, where where is our lives going? Um, You know, the groups of the sort of 60s and stuff, they'd done so many different things. They, You know, they invented the rock opera and the concept album. I know... Frank Sinatra did concept albums and I know there were jazz cons but there wasn't rock concept albums and, and but now there were you know and then also there was rock jazz fusion there was all these versions you know but it was like hey what were we gonna do and uh, somehow seeing the pistols and knowing that this scene that was going on in London because we had been following what was going on in New York for a long time what was going on at CBGB's we were really watching you know listening to the white labels of little Johnny Jewel or whatever you know I never remember if it's Jimmy Jewel or Johnny Jewel, you know, the television song, but... Um, little Johnny Jewel Oh, he's so cool We listen to those white labels and, you know, uh, there'd be these little columns in, like, the English weekly music press, like NME or Melody Maker, just be like a little snippet of what was going on in CBGB's in New York, but we'd, like, hang on to that little bit, or the one picture, <laughs> the one grainy, out-of-focus picture. We were just really following, and um, we kind of believed in what 
Bowie was doing and a lot of what he was saying. He really introduced us to Iggy and the Stooges, really. I mean, we were finding out about them because we were getting into the Velvet Underground, but it was very much to do with like, Bowie was hanging with Iggy and, and Lou Reed. And so, you know, we were being brought along, really, by the people we were following. But yeah, a lot of those experiences, you know, they just gave you kind of an inbuilt belief in a weird way. But yeah, honestly, yeah, when I said to my parents, when I, you know, I'm not going back to university, I'm joining a punk rock group, you're right, there was no punk rock as far as my parents knew there was no overground thing that was really you know god you know there's a definite you're going somewhere definite and you're going to have a future they didn't even know what i was talking about and i mean did i really know 100 but i think i did mm. we really believed you know that was it we'd seen what was going on in we we're hearing what was going on in new york now we're starting to see it happening in london and then we also kind of knew there wasn't just the pistols we kind of knew somewhere there were a few other groups that people like us there was maybe only a few hundred other people a couple of hundred maybe because we knew about uh, the people who were kind of following malcolm mclaren's sex store vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren's, you know, Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die, which became sex, then became seditionaries. Very much following all of that. And um, a lot of that just gave you an innate belief that this was what our generation had to do. And so it wasn't even about leaving university to, I'm going to make a lot of money, mum and dad. You know, it wasn't. Hmm. It was the opposite. In fact, it was, I'm going to do this, even if it only lasts for two years and it's for the five people who enjoy it because that's what we really were thinking of what was our generation going to do and what were we going to say to our people really and mm. what were we going to say to the people who you know already like the, the the bands who'd come before and what were we going to show them that we discovered from listening to them and where we're going to take our lives where we're going to move to and yeah I think we're looking for a sense of freedom and all of this well, it seemed like you were most afraid of having like a really ordinary shitty life <laughs> yeah or a life for you felt trapped I yeah. don't know you know because I could have worked for my you know my dad was a salesman and he actually started his own business and everything it was a tool hire buy business where he sold tools but also would repair them or, or you could buy them on an installment plan really it was the so that's what he was doing and um he really wanted me to work for him, but I just knew <laughs> that working for my dad would be impossible. He's a lovely guy. I love my, I love him. He's, he's, he's not alive anymore now, but mm. I, I love him. But uh, I just knew working for him would be a nightmare, mainly because he just knew how the job needed to be done. And also, it wasn't my dream. It just wasn't my dream. I'd fallen in love with rock music when I was six years old, and um, I'd started to play the guitar, and, uh, you know, I, I invested myself in music and rock and roll because... Uh, as I say, there was this sense of freedom that we were getting from seeing these musicians going around the world and, and seeming to, you know, really be enjoying what they were doing and, and sort of like, you know, struggling with the creative process and everything, but really enjoying what they're doing. And... Um, that's what was turning us on. Looking at your early songwriting, it seems like The Who and Pete Townsend was both an influence on it and something you were responding against, like the song Your, your Generation, obviously. Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing was that uh, a lot of the really, those massive groups of the 60s, the Beatles, Kinks, Who, the Stones, of course, they've done really fantastic work. But it was really kind of looking at their early work in some ways, the early Stones and stuff, that kind of inspiring punk in a way. It was more, it was them when they weren't such good musicians or, you know, <laughs> or they weren't recorded so well, yeah. in fact. It was things like that. But we'd grown up with this sense of freedom and that's what they'd kind of handed down to us. And then it was, what were we going to do? with our time 
And um, yeah, you just felt like even if it wasn't going to get anywhere, this is what you had to do. If you wanted to be a photographer, pick up a camera and just start doing it. You know, if you want to be a journalist, pick up a pen, Xerox what you've written and put it out as a fancy. Just be involved. I don't know if we were picking that up a lot from even from the hippie time because they were very like that. They were like that. The alternative culture that had come before us a little bit were like that. They were striking out and trying new things. And I think in some ways that influenced us to strike out and try new things. The funny thing is just like the mods and the rockers were having like street fights back in the 60s, there was something very similar going on, except it was like at least three ways. It was like punks, skinheads, and what, Teds all kind of beating the shit out of each other? Yeah, that's right. There was the Teddy Boys were, you know, still very much uh, into um, the 50s rock and roll, Elvis and um, Little Richard, and they wore this Edwardian clothes that kind of, you know, gave them this name, the Teddy Boys and stuff. But they were very into the 50s, and they just didn't like the idea that rock and roll had moved and become rock. And I don't think they liked that at all. And then we also punks, we took some of their clothes and we would wear their brothel creepers or some of their drape coats. I mean, uh, and they didn't like that, that we would take in their fashions. And so they were annoyed with us. Then the skinheads, they were basically um, fascist, really. A lot of the skinheads were National Front, which was a fascist party, and they supported that. They hated the immigrants, even though they loved reggae. They hated black people. I, I could never understand that. Yeah. Every youth club I went to in England, they played reggae, but they hated black people. I just, I could never understand that. So, um, but we grew up with all these influences too and uh, because of the immigrant population in England bringing all their musics the Jamaican reggae and they say from India I mean you can see it eventually affected George Harrison you know and it got through to a lot of people but uh, yeah we were getting very influenced by the music that was being brought to England by the immigrants and stuff and um, the first time I heard Young Gifted and Black it wasn't Nina Simone it was a, it was a reggae version you know wow. yeah. <laughs> you know things like that we were hearing American music via Jamaica kind of thing. That's fascinating. It's interesting. The platinum blonde hair came by accident. A girl tried to dye your hair like black or something and it came out. Yeah, I was going to put uh, some blue highlights in it. And so to... Blue. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, it's a bit like you look like Elvis in blue Hawaii or yeah. something. You know, because, <laughs> you know. But uh, she bleached my hair because you bleach your hair to put these blue highlights and then you dye it black again, you know. So, um, But she bleached my hair and then she reached into her bag and went, oh, I haven't got the highlights. So I can't really do what we were going to do. I'll get them and we'll do it next week. So I kind of looked in the mirror and went, well, this isn't that bad. Actually, this is kind of a bit of a laugh. This is a bit of fun, really, because mm. uh, it was a bit orangey. But it was cool, especially for punk. It was, you know, hey, this is fun. So I went to rehearsal like that. And... Um, you know, as soon as I walked through the door, it was a rehearsal for Chelsea. I was in this group, Chelsea, which were kind of connected with the King's Road and connected to punk rock and stuff. And um, Gene October was the lead singer. And uh, as soon as I walked in the door, he kind of came up and he went, uh, your hair, you, you're not leaving it like that. And I went, well, uh, no, I just really did. That. I was starting to say, you know, about the whole story. You know, I'm going to put the blue highlights and put the black back in. But she didn't have that. And he went, no, because you can't leave it like that. And I went, mm. What would you mean? I, well, I was just, you're not going to leave it like that. Are you? Yeah. And he went on like that so much that I just thought, it must look too good. Yeah, yeah this is. I've got to be like. He's got to be worried. I'm super upstaging him. And of course, I said to him, "Yes, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna die it back." But of course, I never did. You know, really. And and yeah, then it became a bit of a trademark. Yeah, it's been a plus and probably maybe a minus to have such a strong image throughout your career. I don't know if you see it that way, but it, it seems like it. There's always a danger when someone has an iconic look that it can overshadow the actual work. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. 
Well, I know what you're talking about. All of us struggle with the body we've been given. And uh, yeah, in lots of ways, I was super lucky. I mean, this look, this is just my parents. The combination of my parents, I'm just really lucky. But um, yeah, and it meant, of course, that people would look at you. Uh, like when I got in this group, Chelsea, you know, it was purely a, I had the right look. I, I knew the scene, had the look they were looking for, really. That was it. You know, I was, yeah, <laughs> yeah I could attract girls. That was the other thing. You know, uh, most of the punk rock groups played to, it was all men, you know, it's virtually all men. You know, they said that maybe there's five girls there or ten, you know. But we played uh, to half girls and half guys. So there you go. There's one side of it. Yeah, you got a little bit slagged off, you know. Oh, yeah, he's only getting where he's getting because he's good looking or something. I don't know. But there again, there was other sides to it. And, um, um, in the end, it does come down to your songs because when you're, the music's on the radio, people can't see what you look like. So, <laughs> so this, in the end, it comes down to whether you're really committed, really, is what it comes down to. So I want to take a moment and talk about Vivid Seats. Staying at home is great, but eventually you just got to get out of the house. Whether you go out to see your favorite band or go cheer on your favorite team in person, you got to get out of the house, you got to have a night out. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert of your choice, the sports event of your choice, whatever event you're looking for at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you might want to go to. On their site, you can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice. You can pick the seat you want. To make things even better, Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive 10% off your first ticket order to save even more money. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can use promo code Rolling Stone. That's R-O-L-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E for 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code Rolling Stone for 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. I thought it was really interesting, just jumping ahead a bit, that you saw a Bo Diddley show like in the early 80s, late 70s, and saw that he was still doing kind of his thing with the square guitars and his look, and that helped you realize that you could just keep your look. You didn't have to change it for the 80s. You would stay in some version of what you had established in 77 or so. Yeah, when I came to America in 81, March of 81, um, of course, yeah, somewhere in the back of my mind was, uh, you know, you know, I wanted to stay looking how I look. I liked what I looked like. I liked what I'd sort of got into, you know, and um, I was me. This is what I felt was me. Although uh, Bill O'Coin was my manager at that time. Yeah. and um, Also Kiss's manager, of course. Yeah. He managed, yeah. yeah, Kiss and things. But uh, he didn't actually say anything to me about my image, but he had a second in command, Rick Alberti or something like that his name was. And um, he said to me, he kind of showed me uh, Rick Springfield's working class dog <laughs> and sort of said, you know, look, uh, this guy's on General Hospital and, you know, he hasn't got the spiky hair he's got. And I, and I just kind of, you know, said, you know, this is it. You know, this is me. This is, it's the same thing. It's a little bit like, you know, when I told my parents I'm going to be in a punk rock group, it's a little bit, this is what I believe is me. And also I'm thinking, 
Bill O'Coin is not asking me this question. Right. If he was asking me this question, I might have a different... This is the second-in-command, so I'm going to give the second-in-command the answer I'm going to give to the world, which is, this is me. I'm not brushing my hair down and becoming David Cassidy for anybody. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that's where we were, you know. Yeah, of course, who doesn't want success? You know, who doesn't want to send millions of records and everything? But at the same time, you want to do it on your own auspices. You know, my dad would have said or something. But, you know, you want to do it through your own abilities. You want to do it on your own playing field you want to do it you know your own way really and um this was part of it part of it was sticking to what i believed in sticking to the image i believed in yeah there was a bit of a fuck you about it all too you know hey <laughs> fuck you i'm gonna stay doing what i think is right you know until the end of my days basically and um, in the end it proved right that um it didn't affect anything i mean uh, at first they wouldn't play my records in america because um they said, they, you know, the, the radio back then, they had a, a blanket thing. We don't play artists who have a punk rock image, but mainly because it wasn't anything to do with the music. It was because the, well, it was, but the music didn't sell advertising dollars. That's really what it was. So, you know, so we didn't put my picture on, on Hot in the City. It's my first single in America, and it got to, like, number 18. It did quite well. But then we put my picture on the cover of White Wedding, and they wouldn't play it, even though they'd already just played the last single. They wouldn't play it. But it got on the college radio, and we did a video at the MTV had started, so once it got on MTV and then the kids were phoning up the record station saying, we want to hear this music we're seeing on the television, you know, that we want this new music, basically. That kind of broke those barriers down. But yeah, they were there. They were these barriers that... But thank God I stuck to what I what I was doing because, as I say, it proved right. And think today, look, it's only now really that people are discovering in America crazy colour. I mean, now everybody's got... This was what people were like in the mid-70s in England. They were all going around with different colour hair. So this was something that was sort of part of what we'd grown up with, really. And, you know, you weren't going to go backwards. We're going to go forwards. I mean, it's easy to underestimate now the sort of revelation and transition you made, you know, specifically, I guess, with Dancing With Myself, to put in dance rhythms and synth and pop melody into that punk context was a huge shift and a brilliant idea. But it, it came from some places, Alan Vega. What were the other things that kind of informed your shift in that direction? It's also confusing to people because that's a, both a Generation X song and a Billy Idol song. And that to subsequent generations is very confusing. <laughs> yeah, and actually, when we did put it out... Uh Initially, on the uh, EP I put out with Moni Moni, initially we put a, an EP out that had uh, Moni Moni, Untouchables, a new song, Baby Talk, and it had a Dancing With Myself, which, <laughs> you know, the record company, to make it sound like it's not exactly the generator, it's a remix, but it wasn't. It was it was the same, <laughs> exact. so I spent the rest of my life going, no, there was no remix, it's the same track. All because, you know, and then, you know, you get people arguing with you about, you know, no, it's the same, we never, but anyway, um, <laughs> it's just they were looking for a selling point and then you end up talking about it even a million years yeah, later. Yeah, right. <laughs> 43 years later or something. Yeah, there was a lot of things like that. Um, I think that today, yeah, you can't imagined the roadblocks that were in your way and one of them yeah there was a roadblock in the sense of yeah trying to do punk rock music that had more melody and stuff and um you know some people just really hated that idea they wanted punk rock to be you know something that was just unlistenable you know in lots of ways <laughs> which is that can be cool but you know i think the idea was that we all felt we should do the version of it that we felt was coming from our heart, you know, sort of thing. And that for me was, well, uh, yeah, I wanted to write, uh, I wanted to write songs that could work um, 
electric and acoustically. That's what I really thought. I thought a great song can work a number of different ways. I thought even though we're putting these songs into a sort of a punk rock milieu or whatever, they really still come down to the fact that occasionally, I and mean, quite a lot of the time, I was writing the songs, the music to the songs. Tony wrote a lot of the lyrics in Generation X. I, I was writing the, the music. A lot of the music, sometimes you're doing it on an unelectrified electric guitar it's, or on acoustic. I mean, I think uh, your generation um, was sitting playing an acoustic guitar. Da, 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 da. Yeah, to write the song, you need the modicum of things. You, you know, you can write a song on one string if you really want to. It doesn't have to be a chord. You, you could write a song on one. You know, you could, anyway. Um, but yeah, not every song I wrote was on an electric guitar. It's on the unplugged electric guitar or even an acoustic guitar because uh, a lot of it comes down to imagination. You can imagine it. Oh, it, I can imagine this when we're going to add electric guitars to it, but I, I'm going to start out sometimes on an acoustic guitar. You can imagine something like a Kiss Me Deadly. Greyhounds rocking out tonight to I would have started that out, you know, thinking very definitely about a very quiet song at the beginning that was going to explode, you know. How about the influences? It's fascinating to me how obsessed you always were with Alan Vega in particular. But what well, were the, I loved, yeah. uh, I loved Suez. I'd come to uh, America in 78 on a, a press junket, you know, for the first generation at XL. They sent me. <laughs> I really wish me and Tony had come, really. I'd, uh, the record company only sent me. Of course, I went to Bleaker Bob's store and um, he gave me a load of records and some of them were suicide records which I really just thought well this band are incredible and um, of course you could play a suicide record and drive people out of the room with it you know because most people but I, somehow I could hear the melody I could hear the sort of I could hear the songs <laughs> you know but to me it wasn't this music that drove you out it was like incredible and um, yeah I was getting influences like that but he also had kind of what Bowie was doing and, um, and people like Cross work and that so and suicide themselves are very much a sort of um, in a way an electronic band i mean they're not really a keyboard band but so it was this like listening to them and um you know digging where punk rock was going but then thinking to myself well i don't like the idea that we're not sort of like yeah these other influences because i was listening to some electronic music right from the early 70s a craft work and there was a band noi neu yeah. i like them a lot and so we were listening and also people like can and stuff and they had sort of elements of electronica even if they weren't yes yeah. an electronic band you know they were just thinking electronic so that was very much what we were hearing too and then after a while you started to want some of the driving nature of disco actually there was a driving nature about disco sometimes once you heard the sort of Donna Summer stuff too what, what sort of Giorgio Moroder was putting in some of those ideas you start to go god it would be great to have that but with a punk rock attitude <laughs> and so yeah when I sort of did start to go solo that's when I got the chance to really so okay now I can sort of move forward and sort of bring all this into what was Generation X music, what became Billy Idol music, and I was able to bring in all these other influences that we hadn't really been using in Generation X. It's interesting because by the time you got to New York, which is where you sort of kicked off your solo career, there was this other kind of punk in New York. It was like New York hardcore, like grimy, grimy underground stuff that could not be more different from where you were going. I don't know. Those guys must have been either unaware of you as you started to have hits, or maybe they hated you. <laughs> they might have done, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they might have done because they might have seen you've gone into a completely different place in a way. But there again, I mean, uh, when I watch, say, even that recent uh, Epics punk um, 
documentary that John Vivatus put yeah. out where they had a lot of the hardcore bands talk where the guys in the groups weren't violent really but you know unfortunately for them their attitude brought in a load of people who were then coming to the gigs just to like mess the gigs up you know and mess the bands up like just come to have a fight that seemed like wow that's probably why I did want to go into dance music and stuff yeah. and everything because I could see a little bit what was starting to happen you know the violence thing it was getting really scary because, you know, in lots of ways, they don't get to the bands, but yeah. they get to the fans. Your fans are getting the shit kicked out of them. We can get off the stage and hide. and <laughs> But, you know, that. and then I saw, once I saw the sort of epic, some of the documentaries, just how really their attitude, now, unfortunately, brought in all the wrong people and it destroyed the scene. And it sort of destroyed us. It was a shame for them, I thought. But that's right. They may well have thought I was a bit of a turncoat. And I can understand that in lots of ways. I can understand that. But at the same time, I think you had to go forward and do the music with your vision. You know, you couldn't kowtow to someone else and you couldn't sort of do it just because that's what was going on. You know, you had to do what you thought was, this is me, though. And I can see why they're doing what they're doing, but that's not where I want to go. And I certainly didn't want all that vile. I'd just been through the London scene where you know you're getting spit at you know they spat at you if they liked you so you can imagine what they did if they didn't like you so <laughs> yeah exactly it's amazing to think you wrote so many of your great songs it seems like when you were really fucked up on drugs and stuff did it not impede you were you just highly functional or was it somehow getting you to that for better or worse it does sometimes open up a creative door how is that all working for you I don't know if you've read uh, Keith Richards' book. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you notice, he talks a lot about when he's high, he would make up a lot of mixtapes and stuff. And so what's he really doing? He's listening to music. And why is he making the mixtapes? Because that's how he's being involved. You know, he's enjoying it. He's going, I'm going to listen to this later. Or I'm, he's fueling his thoughts and that. And um, that's obviously not the moment when he's comatosed on whatever drug he's on. He's obviously maintaining at that point. The fact he was maintaining meant really you're just not sick. <laughs> right. You're kind of normal, basically. Right. You're just not, you're normal. Right. You're not sick. So, um, but at the same time, yeah, maybe somewhere, maybe you do get a little bit of a confidence boost by the drug, even though it, it's not at its strongest. In fact, at that moment, it's at its weakest. And that's when I would be writing things like Rebel Yell or, you know, using the sort of the influence of the drug in a way. But it's when you're not, you know, completely smashed on it, you're really maintaining. And that's when I was, you know, writing, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of songs I wrote would be in that state one way or another. We were spending yeah, 24-7, you know, eight days a week, you know, <laughs> thinking drinking listening music 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 you know and uh, everything you did and thought and said was somehow connected to that you know to this thing you were pursuing and of course trying to write the best songs you could was you're going to use any device you could to get there you were lucky enough, you both were lucky enough to meet Steve Stevens, and that became a really interesting musical partnership. What worked about him in the beginning, and why do you think it initially fell apart? And obviously you guys have since gotten back together, which is heartwarming. Well, um, I'd had a great guitarist in Generation X, you know, Durwood, Bob Andrews, was a really good player. And um, I think people like Johnny Marr and that uh, admire Durwood, rightly so, because he was a, a great player. And um, I'd actually seen him initially um, 
in a cover band doing like Black Sabbath, Deep Purple. You know, he was doing uh, Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> He's basically doing that kind of music, but I could see what a good guitarist he was. And then um, I talked him into coming to a Generation X rehearsal and he joined the group, you know. And um, so really, I'd always worked with someone who wasn't just a punk rock guitarist. I'd worked already worked with a guitar player who could go beyond punk rock and who could talk about Jimi Hendrix and, and, and could play a bit like uh, Paul Kossoff. He could yeah. play a bit like Paul Kossoff if I said, hey, play a bit like Paul. <laughs> you know, he could be like that. So I was used to that. And um, it was Bill O'Coin, really, who knew Steve Stevens and said to me, you know, I know this guy who's fantastic on the guitar. And when I met Steve, pretty much from the right from the immediately meeting him and everything, um, I really liked him. And we decided, really, that uh, he'd help me put a group together and we'd see if just doing that, we'd see what would happen. Like, just help me, man, put a group together. I've got to put a group together. I've got this dancing myself and bony moany now. So we really need to be out there playing. If you could help me put a band together and then we'll find out how we work together that way. And that's what happened. And then we... We did have a little bit of a falling out, and that was really just because I think uh, I was overdoing the drugs, really, mm. and, um, you know, in particular coke. You know, I was, I'm not really a cocaine person. I should never have. That's one of the things I regret about my life, <laughs> really, is that I should never have. I knew, I know I'm not a cocaine person, and then you're doing it. You know, that's just the drug addict in you. That's the problem, you know, with being a drug addict. This freedom we're searching for, you know, you're cutting that off. Mm. That's the only thing about. Uh, so uh, I'm glad I've got away from um, from drugs and stuff, and uh, that I'm fairly, you know, fairly okay today. That's good. I must say, I've talked to people and heard decadent album recording stories, and I thought uh, Guns N' Roses doing "Appetite for Destruction" was really something that when Axel had sex with a young woman and recorded it for the song "Rocket Queen," I thought that was really something. Then I heard about. <laughs> Your Charmed Life Sessions for 1990. That may well be, I'd hesitate to say, but it's definitely got to be one of the most just decadent, literally orgiastic recording sessions possibly in the history of rock and roll. Yeah, it really was like that. I guess, you know, the AIDS was sort of like on the, you know, was super on the horizon. Um, and not just for gay people, it was now on the horizon for sort of heterosexual. And so I don't know if we were having some last ditch kind of... <laughs> partying you know because it's over i don't know if that's why we were doing it but uh, i wonder if you also kind of sent you knew the 80s were ending subconsciously is you know well, that's yeah that's what i'm saying really yeah. yeah maybe we kind of knew in a way this the time was you know this kind of free love time which i'd luckily enough been a teenager through and everything you know the sort of the 60s and 70s in england they got rid of uh, syphilis in the 50s i think uh, gonorrhea you could get rid of that syphilis you could you could get rid of it a lot of the suit these kind of the super diseases sexual diseases and things they got rid of so um and then the pill as well the pill meant a lot of girls are on the pill it really just opened things up to where you know really people are having sex left right and center and it carried on and as you say i think it carried on to where right by the end of the 80s yeah we, we could see on the horizon it, it's ending but we i think we would yeah just you know living it up while we could and you said it was also connected to a little bit of anxiety about whether it's going to be a hit album because you had had a, such a series of success. And there's always the question of like, when do you hit the wall? Because there's always some kind of wall, you know. Well, especially with Charm Life too. That was the first album I without was making Steve, without yeah. Steve. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there was. I think it was a lot of trepidation in some ways, but it all came off really well in the end. And Mark Youngsmith did a really great job. He came in on the guitar and um, he did a great job. And we worked together on Cyberpunk as well. But in the end, you know, Steve really is. Uh, Steve can do things that. Uh, 
I know he can just do things that other people can't do. He just he, he can play like three people if he wants to. I think the beginning of Rebel Yell, he takes two guitar players to do that. If I don't have Steve, we have to have two guitars. That's incredible. Because <laughs> he's playing like three people. I think most people know that you had this absolutely horrendous motorcycle accident. I mean, one thing I'm just curious about is you sort of saw some kind of realm and beings, like a red something or other. Yeah, it's more the feeling uh, I was getting was a very warm womb-like sort of feeling. And uh, so to me, that sort of picture, you know, felt red, you know, like I don't know if I was seeing red really, but uh, as much as it felt warm. So I was trying to just sort of, you know, felt like you're in some sort of red womb, you know having this sort of experience, which I'd sort of had before. Was it ever something you'd seen on acid or anything, was it? When I was 16, and I was working at this kind of, um, it was a shop that people who have shops go to buy the stuff retail. It was a re- great big retail shop that, yeah, as I say, people who have stores go there. Like a wholesale supplier. Yeah, yeah. they're getting, yeah. They, they, I suppose they get, they get, yeah, they can get huge amounts. So I was working somewhere like that and there was this guy who, he was a jazz guitarist and um, we started talking about guitars, you know, because this is back in the early 70s or something when I was 15, 16, you know, so it's early 70s and... Um, but he was into jazz, so he'd, he'd start teaching me some of the elements of guitar and stuff. Mm. I, I'd already could play the guitar, but he was teaching me some of some of what he knew. And then he, he was telling me um, that he goes to this church um, where his girlfriend in particular was a medium and, um, you know, spirits would talk through her. He sort of said to me, do you want to come one night? So I kind of went, well, you know, we're sort of grooving on the guitar and, you know, we're sort of hanging together and stuff. So I kind of went, oh, okay, yeah, f- sure, I'll go. So it was just in a little church village hall, really. It was just in a village hall. And there were 20 people or something. And we, we sat in a circle. And uh, the first part of the of this kind of um, session was um, you meditated for 20 minutes where you just sort of sat there with your head down. Yeah, just kind of calm your spirit, I suppose, really. And what, it, what they were thinking was that for the mediums in the circle they were going to let open the channels up so mm. the spirits could come through well the first time i did this uh, nothing i didn't i did, just meditated and then you know the guy said right we're coming out of the meditation and right now is there anybody who wants to talk through anybody of course as i said my guitar playing friend's girlfriend uh, was she just had a million spirits coming through her she was like a massive medium like i don't know she could go anyway so uh yeah but it was all things like uncle arthur wants to tell you uh so and so so and so <laughs> that he's fine up here he's don't worry about him it was all this sort of stuff which i'm kind of going like you know for fuck's sake <laughs> tell him to put his slippers on will you, you know like whatever it was all these kind of it's very it was nice but anyway but then the second time I went and it was this meditation thing. Yeah, we began this meditation and then at some point in it, I suddenly found myself, I was above myself, I was looking down, I could I could look down and see myself in the chair. Whoa. I was looking down, yeah, so I felt I was above myself and out of my body and um, I was surrounded by what felt like uh, just loads of sentient beings. They didn't have bodies, they didn't have form or anything, but uh, they were all speaking to you inside my head, you know, you didn't hear anything. It was more like you're just hearing, you know, it was inside you. Somehow they could speak inside you and they, they were telling you things like, um, we love you, you know, you shouldn't worry so much. Why do you worry so much? Mm. You know, you don't need to worry. We love you. Mm. It was all these, you're all right, you shouldn't worry. And um, 
I don't know how long that went for, I'd, but like I say, it was very like a very womb-like feeling, very warm womb-like feeling. And um, then suddenly I came out of it and I was just back in the, you know, sitting in the chair again. And um, that never happened again, but it happened when I had that accident. Wow. On a less like sort of supernatural level, among the consequences were, first of all, you did, a, you know, after a lot of recovery, you, you managed to do a tour, which I saw, actually. I saw Faith No More open up for you guys. Yeah, it's uh, great, fantastic. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I was like 16, and I think me and my friend drank a beer in the parking lot. That was the big rebellion. So we, <laughs> but you were like, you had canes and stuff, right? Because you were still on that tour. Yeah, it took me, um, the accident was in February, and it took till August to really, I don't know, we were trying to get this tour, go on tour with Charm Life. It took a good six months, I had about seven operations. Eventually, I did make it up onto that stage with a cane, limping a bit, but uh, but we made it, yeah. And uh, the other thing was, I think you had to take a smaller part in Alberstone's The Doors than had been planned, which is... Yeah, it was a shame, because I had Michael Madsen's role, so right. I was going to play... Um, this actor who was a friend of Jim Morrison's who'd been in the Andy Warhol factory scene. So it's a shame I couldn't do it. And uh, yeah, it did have a bit of a lesser part. And um, But I was on crutches the whole time. So <laughs> it was kind of, I was on crutches for three years, you know, like you know, <laughs> the broken leg for three years in the movie, you know, sort of thing. It's, so it was silly, you know, really. Uh, he could only show me... <laughs> You know, he couldn't really do what he wanted to. It was a shame, really. So, uh, But I was there for a lot of the movie, and it was exciting watching Val and everybody sort of bring it to life. And um, Carl McLachlan was great. And it was just fantastic. It was a great experience, and it was a shame I blew it by having that stupid accident, you know. The really tantalizing thing, obviously, is that you could have been the other Terminator in Terminator 2. Yeah, uh, yes, which- that's right. Uh, I went for an audition, um with James Cameron and um, you know I even acted some of the part uh, I think the part where uh, the T2 goes to the parents I had to act that scene where he goes to the parents and says you know both the picture have you seen this boy or whatever right, you know, right. <laughs> that's what I had to do yeah. and then shoot them right. And uh, but the trouble is that um, I had this terrible limp and um, you know that's what James Cameron said he said that the only problem is I really need I need you to be able to run will you be able to run and I said I, I just I can't I'm, I'm just about walking you know yeah and um, it's going to take me a while to really get 100% back to normal so yeah and he knew then at that point the CGI thing there was no way they could really fake it right then really Robert Patrick could I have brought that cold veneer that he brought Mm. he brought this incredible cold veneer so you've got this really interesting kind of joint band with Steve Jones. Is that still an ongoing thing, Generation Sex, where you're kind of mixing Gen X and the Sex Pistols? Are you going to do some more of that? Yes, uh, yeah, we're going to do some, I think maybe in Europe next year, next summer. We'd like to do more here. I think a couple of the lads have got to get visas and things. Uh (laughs) It's interesting because it seems like you deliberately avoid any of the Johnny Rotten stuff. Well, we yeah, I just, uh, I don't want people to think that I think I'm Johnny Rotten. I don't, you know, I know he's the man and uh, you know there is only really one Johnny sort of thing um, but uh, yeah so initially we were doing the rock and roll swindle stuff because Johnny didn't sing that and also a lot of people haven't heard that stuff so a lot of it's great a lot of it's really good fun so uh, we did do that initially but um, when we did a second gig which we did here in New York for Chrome Heart we did put in God Save the Queen and Pretty Vacant because Jonesy just felt well a lot of Americans don't know the swindle stuff what they really know is the first album so we put a couple of more 
tracks in and that's probably what we will be doing whenever we next do something a bit little but there'll be some of the swindle but a little bit more of the you know of the never mind the bollocks album but uh, but yet at the same time um Durwood and Mark uh, for Generation X they're up for a reunion so I'm hoping that we will have a full-on Generation X reunion apart from Generation oh, that's X a, that's so, exciting yeah yeah <laughs> at some point I'm hoping we can do that Billy Idol thank you so much for being here that was a lot of fun all right that's, thank you appreciate it so this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume channel 106 in the meantime we are a podcast download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts subscribe to us as a podcast maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes especially if you have a great episode like the one you just heard with Billy Idol and as always thanks for listening and we'll see you next week Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.